Yeah, when Reuben smiles, babies cry. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 176 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. That's Marcus Blankenship. Howdy. You want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Marcus. Is there more to it? There probably should be, but... I'm Marcus. I'm based in the desert of Oregon, and uh, I am, uh, oh golly, what I am. I'm sort of uh, a management CEO coach for people who are learning to transition from uh, doing programming or any kind of work they love to do to leading people who do that work on their behalf. This is the part where we get on you for not having that elevator pitch memorized. I know. I know. I'm already <laughs> I'm already anticipating hate in Slack for it. So <laughs> So yeah, so uh it's kind of an interesting topic because I think initially when we get into freelancing, we aren't managers. We're selling our own services and we're doing all the work. And then eventually some of us are going to get enough work to where we either have to start telling it to go away or we start moving more toward that management role where we're the CEO now of a consulting firm where we're farming out work to other people. Yeah, that's what happened with me. I mean, I definitely started when I started when it was when it was myself and one other person. So we we were partners in the business, but for a long time it ran as just two guys in in an office that would uh, work nights and weekends freelancing. And uh, you know, over time you sort of get bigger aspirations uh, and you realize that you can only like one person can only take on so large a project. At least there's some, I think there's some really practical limits. And obviously, it, it doesn't scale amazingly. And I'm sure you guys talk a lot about productizing things and, and other great topics that helps you to scale. But at some point, you might need another human being to be involved and uh, to do that work for you, or at least alongside you. So how, how do you do that? How do you move from, I'm going to do all the work, to I'm going to have somebody else do some of the work? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know, and I know there's good and bad ways to do it, but I guess I'd love to hear, Charles, I mean, you're clearly in a position where you said you do a little bit of leadership stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you remember when you first did it? Oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so the first person that I hired to do some of the work that I was getting paid for was with probably my second or third client. Uh, I found a guy in Brazil on Odesk, and he did a bunch of work. And he did great work for about six months. And then I don't know what happened, but he quit doing great work and started doing crappy work. And so I let him go and I figured out that I just wasn't that great, I guess, at management. But I don't know. There was no way to know that he was going to start doing poor quality work. That's a great point. I think that happens all the time at the beginning of relationships, right? It's always like rainbows and unicorns, like beginning of projects, you know? Um, so you had high hopes. You probably saw his initial work and like you were super excited about it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then like one day though, you came in or you looked at it and you were less excited. You sort of felt a little let down. Yes. A lot let what down. A lot let down. Sounds like it was pretty dramatic. It yes. wasn't like slowly over time. Yeah. I think that that is an incredibly common experience. And a lot of people I know who are freelancing will hire friends or people in their network mm -hmm. to do work for them. And it always starts out great. You never start dating somebody thinking, oh, this is going to be a terrible relationship, right? Or, or <laughs> you don't date at all. Yep. Um, so you always start out very optimistic. And I think one of the things that I'm curious if you did was when you first saw the decline in his work, did you talk to him about it? Yes. And did you know immediately it wasn't going to work out or did that give you any optimism back? Uh, I knew pretty much after talking to him that I was going to wind up letting him go because he just, he just gave me a bunch of excuses about why he wasn't doing it right. Well, ultimately, yeah. I was telling him, this is how you have to do it. and this is what it's got to look like. And it was, well, that's not the way I work. And that's, and <laughs> you know, for me, it's, well, that's what I promised the client. So that's, what's got to happen. 
how much longer was it before you let him go? How many weeks? About two. About two. Yeah, I talk to people. So I think that's uh, a lot of people I talk to will tell me they saw the work declining and they won't say anything. They will be optimistic. They'll think, well, maybe this was a uh, a one-off problem, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the fundamental errors is you don't, you you sort of become very conflict avoidant and you, you just hope that people are going to behave in a certain way, the way that supports you and what you want. And so you're overly optimistic. So you don't say anything to them and, and you just kind of let it go. I'm really glad to hear you didn't in that case, because you probably could have imagined things wouldn't have changed if you hadn't said anything. Uh, and in the end, the change was he went away. Yes. So I think one of the hardest things, and I, it's one of the reasons why I don't encourage people to hire friends, is there's going to be times you have to have difficult conversations with people. And uh, being willing to do that is a part of taking on the responsibility of hiring somebody else. Yep. I completely sure. agree. Sure. I say all the time that you are not ready to hire someone unless you're ready to fire someone. I have a similar saying. I say uh, you're not allowed to hire anyone who you can't terminate. So, for example, I would never hire my kids because even though there was a lot of pressure at my house, I just hire hire the boys, hire your daughter. I mean, you have a business. You're a big shot. Just mm-hmm. hire him. And I'm like, if I hire him, I might have to fire him. And that's going to make Thanksgiving super awkward. <laughs> I had a friend uh, several years ago that once I started my own business and started to get business, uh, he was saying, well, you know, I'd be happy to jump in and help out. And we'd been friends since we were like 13. And he wasn't a coder, but, you know, he was saying he was willing to come and work in my business. And, yeah, I told him no. And I just said, look, I said, if it ever comes down to, uh, you know, keeping our friendship or you keeping your job. And I'm just like, I just don't want to be there. I don't ever want to wind up there. You know, it's it's one thing to be friends and go see movies and go to football games. It's another thing to have to make a decision that I don't need what you're offering anymore. Or you screw up to the point where I don't have any choice but to say, sorry, you're gone. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And once you own the business or you make cl- and you start making client promises, right, those have to become the most important things. Yep. And on a tangential note, that's kind of why I don't do business with friends either, which sounds weird. But I don't build, like when I had my company, I wouldn't build websites or mobile apps for friends. Do you guys do work for people that are your friends? I won't even do work for local companies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to run into them. (laughs) That's hilarious. I have two uncles that uh, one of them is a commercial appraiser and the other one uh, works in the online security business, but both of them have had the best business idea ever. And I'm going to make millions of dollars. And can you build it for me? And, and I look at them and I go, sure. And they're like, okay, well, what's your rate? And so I tell them that it's $300 an hour. And they're like, really? You charge your clients that much? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, is there a family discount? And I said, that is the family discount. And then they give me, a, a you know, Another confused look. Well, if you don't charge your clients, then how is that the family discount? And I said, I charge 200% to family. And the whole point is, is it's not worth it to you to work with me because there's a higher risk and I'm going to account for that in my rate. That didn't make me happy. I love it. I don't think I'd ever thought of a family rate that was dramatically higher <laughs> yeah, because I, I of the emotional two- risk going along with it. Yeah. However you want to look at it, it's a negative 100% discount. In other words, I double the rate. Yeah. And so, yeah, they ultimately talked to somebody else and figured out neither of them followed through on it. But yeah, it it just wasn't worth it because, I mean, they're both married to my mom's sisters. They both live here in town and there's just no way to get around it if something goes bad. You'd be crafting your own personal hell there. Yeah. Yep. So you got rid of this guy. Was that challenging? Was that hard for you to do? Or did you just call him up and say, hey, Donald Trump style, you're fired? Uh, yeah, I basically, uh, so I talked to him and he gave me all those excuses and I said, well, if you don't change it, I'm going to fire you. A couple weeks later, nothing had changed. So I fired him. You know, we had been communicating over email. He was in Brazil, so I didn't call him. I just, you know, I just communicated with him the way that we had been the entire time. And then I left him a review on Odesk that wasn't very favorable either. And that really ticked him off. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. So then did you ever hire anybody else? I mean, you probably did. And did you do anything different? So over the years, I've had other deals where I've hired freelancers that I know, 
I have a guy right now that does a bunch of work for me. He's worked for on several of my client projects. He actually took a Rails course from me and is a longtime listener to my podcast. And we just kind of hit it off and started chatting. And it became very apparent that he wanted to work with me and that he could do the kind of work that I need him to do. And he's been working for me for like two years now. And that has worked out splendidly. But, I mean, he communicates with me. He does everything that he needs to do. The work is top-notch. And I don't have any problems with it. And you're not friends. You're oh, we're friends. You're associates. We're friends, but that kind of came later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we have those discussions, it is pretty clear that I am paying him to do a job. And I have no compunctions about firing him if I don't need him anymore. I love it. I think that's such an important part of it is being clear about the relationship. Uh, when I used to hire people when I was my company, uh, at first we wanted, like probably a lot of people who talk about, oh, I'm going to start this digital agency or consultancy, kind of want everybody to be bros, kind of want everybody to be friends, right? You get the ping pong table or the dartboard and you, you think you're all going to do fun stuff and it's going to be great. And, uh, you get confused, I think it's, well, or at least it can be confusing to you as to the true nature of the relationship because you start to act like you're not the boss. Right. Well, the thing is, is you want to like the people you work with. You want to get along with them. You you want to have those relationships. I can tell you that I've had some angst over other people that I've hired because we became good friends and didn't have that parameter set where I felt like I could fire them or that I could cut back on their hours. And so I have gone through emotional turmoil over whether or not to stick it out and just deal with it whether or not I'm better off just letting the status quo run. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I would have been better off letting these people go. And sometimes it it worked out when I didn't. So sometimes that's a hard call to make. Yeah, it is. And no matter what, right? Like if you're, if you've got to fire someone, I can tell you from experience, like it's painful no matter what. Although if it's someone close to you, then it just sort of adds to that angst. Yeah. Ruben, it sounds like you're speaking, like you said, from experience. Tell me about the time you fired somebody. (laughs) So I've had my company for almost 20 years. And I guess like in the second or third year, um, I started getting enough work that I got to that point where I had to decide, am I going to stay small or am I going to grow? And I had, as I, I, I might mention on the show, like, you know, I had these dreams of the learner consulting office towers gleaming on in the, in, in, in the, uh, you know, in the skyline. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll grow. And I hired someone part-time to help me out. And basically for a number of years, I had people working for me. It usually lasted for about a year or two. And I guess probably about 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. So it was like 2000 or so, maybe 99. I hired a few people. I actually had like four people working for me at the time. Uh, no, even six people. Sorry, six people working for me at the time. And uh, I rented an apartment to use as an office. And things were going great because it was, of course, you know, 1999 and it, it, the, the dot-com era was happening. People were calling me all the time to do stuff. And here and there, I had to hire some people. Uh, fire, I'm sorry, fire some people. There was a guy whom I hired after he'd taken some technical courses, and I thought he might be able to sort of pick up what we needed. But there was way more experience necessary than, than I really could, you know, than, than he really could provide. But the real sort of big thing and what's affected me to this day is when the bottom dropped out of the market in 2000, and I had a bunch of people working for me, I said, oh, like, I saw what was going on, and I did exactly what Chuck sort of said, which is, uh, I'm sure it'll get better. I'll just sort of hold on. And that was bad because I these were full-time employees. I promised them I was actually obligated to give them a salary. And the assumption was I was going to somehow bring in the money. I sort of laid them off in waves. First, they were the first two who were just clearly not as good as the others. And then a third person, and, and that was painful just because, I, I just personally, right? Like I knew for the business it had to happen, but it's never pleasant saying to someone, I'm sorry, but I don't have enough work for you. You've got another month. And then if you need help getting another job, I'll help you. But I, I can't provide you with that anymore. A third guy basically was hired away by the company for whom he had been doing consulting. They called me up and said, we really like him. We want to hire him full time. I said, no way. He's a fantastic employee. I won't let you do that. And they said, well, then we're going to just drop you as a consultant. I said, okay, let me talk to him. <laughs> and and we worked out a deal there where they sort of paid me as if I were a, a headhunting service. And the last one, I guess, oh, that's right. I went to the U.S. and I got a call from a client saying, so what's going to happen now that so-and-so is in the hospital? I was like, he's what? <laughs> so it turns out he was in the hospital and hadn't bothered to tell me or let me know or anything. 
And so when I got back to Israel, uh, I fired him. I don't think I even had to say it, but he sent a friend to pick up his stuff. So I've had a variety of different experiences, but all that has really, really sort of affected me such that nowadays I do have an employee now and I've had people for the last few years. They've all been, how should I put it? They're employees, but I pay them by the hour based on what work that they do. And that avoids making me, uh, you know, hold the bag if everything goes away. Like if there's no work for that month, then they don't get paid. So you really, well, first of all, those are really hard lessons to have learned. But so you, your takeaway was I'll hire people and I'll pay them on an hourly basis as needed without making the larger commitment that I'm going to feed your family semi forever is what it feels like. Right. What it basically comes down to is it's in my interest to find them work because then I make something off of that also and I can work on larger projects. But if I can't for whatever reason, then I'm not making any promises. And they are also, by the way, allowed to, if they want to find other work on their own, do that. And so my current employee, I know that he does a few things on the side and it's totally okay with me so long as he's available when I need him. And he works flexible hours and I'm not on top of him anyway. So it really works out very well. But right, under no, under no circumstances nowadays would I hire someone with a guarantee I will give you 40 X you know, hours per week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you guys, have you found that you're typically letting people go more for attitude or skills? Attitude. I, I don't even have to think about it. It's attitude. I, I mean, even the, the guy that kind of slacked off, I mean, he had the skills. It was the other way around. I have another fellow that I hired to work on. He subcontracted for me on a rather large project. We got about halfway done, and the client emailed or put something into the system we were using to track the project, basically asking, how do I do this one thing in what was built? And he had built that part. And his response was effectively RFTM. <laughs> wow. And he said it with about that much uh, kindness behind it as well. And so, you know, so I went back to him and I said, I'm sorry, but you got to apologize. You know, you, you can't just tell him in a tone that clearly says you are a stupid idiot for not knowing how to do this or looking at the documentation that I put in there in the code. And he refused. And so he got fired. Yeah, wow. that and that, that he probably didn't epic. finish his day out there. Nope. He got fired. He got paid. And yeah, I had a few other people reach out to me and said, uh, so-and-so says that he worked for you for a while. I said, yeah, don't do it. See, that, that's I've very heard. hard. That's very hard to do. And, and I've had to do that also. I had a guy who was technically brilliant. I mean, exactly what you're describing, Chuck. Technically brilliant. And I actually had a client call me and say, please never send him to me again. He's so unpleasant to work with. And yes, he gets the job done, but it's just like, it's just not worth it. Well, and yeah, so he was in that. The profits in that relationship. Exactly, exactly. And I kept trying to explain to them, look, you can't tick people off. You can't have this attitude. You're there to help them. You're there. Like I, I kept saying, the most important skill of being a consultant is not technical. It's listening, listening to what they have to say and what they want to do, and then helping them accordingly. And he just totally, totally did not get that. By the and, way, that, um, and so I've, I've had calls, though, from people saying, so, uh, you know, he gave us a reference. Can you actually recommend him? And I had to say, no. That comment was pure gold, Ruben. That was, you should say that again. The most important skill is listening. Absolutely. It's so funny because uh, people ask me, so, so what's the trick to being a freelancer? I said, you want to know what ABC stands for, for freelancers? And they go, oh, I know that. It's always be closing. And I'm like, no, it's always be communicating. Yes, 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 yes. If, if you aren't talking to your client and you're not listening to them to figure out what they need, you're not doing a good job because you're going to give them something that they don't want or need and they're going to wind up paying for it. And that's not being a good freelancer or being a good provider of services. Service provider. Yeah. No, I think that, uh, I think you said something else, Ruben, that was really important. When people think about, hey, I'm going to bring this guy onto the project, realize that everybody you bring in is a potential liability, especially if they have any communication with the client, which given email and project management systems or whatever, that's almost always the case. People have said to me now, oh, you're doing all this technical training. Why don't you hire some people and then you can grow and you can make tons of money? I was like, I know what it's like to be the lecturer and show up there. And I actually had this. I had someone work for me and he did a, a course. And an hour into it, I got a call from, this was not the same guy, a call from the company saying, we sent him back home. Like he had nothing to tell us. This was awful. It's my reputation on the line. It's my company. It's my profits on the line. So... For me to hire someone to go and present for half a day or a day to a company and me not being there, no way, not at this point. It's just too risky. 
No, that's right. It's nothing but risk, right? You might think, well, I'll make a bunch of money lying on a beach somewhere, but you're going to have to give that money back more times than you can count because you have unhappy clients and you're certainly not going to get repeat customers. Right. There's a theme that keeps cropping up here, which is that the way to grow your business is to hire people. And I fundamentally disagree with that. That's one way to grow your business because the concept is that you're leveraging lower paid resources and marking them up and that you can sit on a beach and drink margaritas based on the sort of very anti-Karl Marx attitude of, you know, <laughs> these people are not smart enough to charge what they're worth or I'm adding some value in the sales department or something that they would never do. So, but there's another way to grow your business, which is getting bigger clients that you're adding more value for and charging more money. And you don't have to hire people to do that. And there are pros and cons to both approach. I'm a fan of the lone wolf approach, but I know that's my personality. So my question for Marcus is, how do you know if you're the type of person who's going to be able to grow their business by hiring their way out of the too much work situation? And when do you know when to start doing it? Well, I would, I'm going to turn this back on you just for a second, Jonathan. How do you know you're the lone wolf person? Because I've done both and I just drastically prefer not worrying about 10 people's mortgages. I just want to worry about my own mortgage. And it's just never worked out for me. And I don't, you know what, you know what it is? Here's the answer. I don't really care about getting better at it. I want to work with people who do not need me to manage them. I want to work with people who are professionals, are self-managed and execute what they say they're going to execute. And the, I'm just, you know, maybe this makes me sound like a jerk. Uh, but I just don't really care about worrying about someone's morale. Reuven know? sounds like you also are a lone wolf right now. Is that right? Well, I've got my one one employee, and I actually have for the last few months, thanks to this client, uh, I've got fantastic client I've had for a few years, where they ramped up work. So he's had, I would say, like two-thirds to full-time work for the last few months, which is just fine. But I'm also a very kind of light manager. I basically give him huge latitude. He's talking directly to the client. I'm talking to them, certainly, but he does the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff with him, and I can rely on him 100%. He's demonstrated that time and again, um, okay. which makes him unusual. So if Jonathan's the lone wolf and Reuven's the small pack, right? Yes, yes. By the way, I, can't, I cannot imagine growing. Like Even if I were to have the opportunity, maybe hire one person, another two, but I think small pack is a fantastic description because I've totally given up on the skyscraper idea. Mm. Okay. okay, Charles, how about you? What are you? Uh, are you a Jonathan? Are you a small pack or a lone wolf or something else? So currently I'm probably fit in the small pack. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the direction that I want to go with my consulting. And that is going to require me to ramp up probably to have at least a reasonable sized team to be able to handle the work that's coming in. Now I'm going to be doing a lot of the consulting myself, but a lot of the actual turning the crank to get code out, to get apps built, is probably are probably going to be done by other people whom I manage or whom I find somebody to manage. So okay. I'm, I'm going to be moving up. Uh, and and I'll tell you, Jonathan, I'm a lone wolf guy too, which might seem crazy because I'm sitting here talking about managing people, right? Right. But the reality is, is like I left my corporate job where I was assistant department manager of software, and we had like 60 people in the company. Uh, I'm sorry, in the department. And I went to start my own company with just two of us, and I we expanded to between 11 full-timers, maybe like 20 with contractors. And managing people was basically all I did after we got rolling. And I had a very similar experience to Reuven, where honestly, it was actually at Christmas time. <laughs> oh, God. I had to go in like a week before Christmas and call everybody. Some of them were actually on Christmas vacation. Oh, man. And I had to say, I'm sorry. We're out of work. I'm closing the doors. Like, Don't come back, basically. Yeah, don't come back. I'm, this sucks. We'll ship you your equipment, right? Or, you know, you can come back and pick it up or blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is I had to do that big layoff. And I did it all at once. And it was one of the worst things I've ever had to do. The stress building up to it where... I was worried about it for so long and I lived in this space of denial that it was ever going to happen, all, wanting to be optimistic that I'd get a sale. We all have stories. But then in the end, I realized once I was just me, I just like you, Jonathan, I thought I never want to hold someone else's livelihood in my hands that way. I never want to be responsible for it again. 
And I'm so much happier now as a solo guy. But that doesn't mean I don't see that some people, probably Charles here, is going to make scaling really work for him. It just didn't work for me. And so your question about how do you know if it's going to work? Every one of you guys, your answer is based on experience. And my guess is people are just going to have to try for themselves to some extent. But in order to know if you're a lone wolf guy, a small pack guy, or I'm going to build an empire kind of guy. But I think there's some things you can do in there to kind of decide little tests you can give yourself. Experience is great. But for example, if you hate talking to other people, you're probably not going to be a great manager. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hate talking to other people. I I avoid it. I avoid it three times a day for Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm just kidding. You know, if you hate, if you are scared to give feedback, you're probably going to be a pretty crummy manager. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the whole thing is realizing, and if you're afraid to quit coding, if you think that the most valuable job in the dep- in the company you're going to own are the software developers, then you're probably not going to be a very good manager because that's what you're always going to be drawn back to is that the lure of the keyboard. Can you, I push you that button to, a little? Yeah, you got to bring it. That. That's a good one. So here's my issue is that I have clients and I want to deliver them the highest quality thing possible. The highest fidelity way I can guarantee quality is to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and I've run into this before, and I've kind of had to get over it some. So I've also run into the situation where I've hired a subcontractor or hired somebody who basically was the contractor. It just had my name on it. You know, they did all the client interaction and everything, and I just got a little bit off the top of what they got paid where they didn't do a great job. And so I, I worry a little bit, not that I necessarily feel like that's where I can add the most value, but I have a little bit of trouble giving up the quality control that I know I get when I do it myself. Does that make sense? Chuck, Chuck, totally. I, yes and no. I, I can totally understand that, but um, well, my yeah, current employee, part of the reason why I love having him work on myself and part of the reason why my clients love him is in many ways he's better than me. Yeah. Like he's more detail-oriented. He has, I'm guessing, fewer bugs. I don't think he necessarily, like, we complement each other very well because he doesn't always see the big picture and he can't always debug as fast as I can. But when it comes down to, like, getting things out and getting them done, quality and security, I know he's better than I am. And so while I had that attitude for a long time, he would be like, why don't I just do this? Like, stop stop trying to do it yourself because I'll just do a better job. And after a while, I realized he's right. If you're not delegating, you're micromanaging. You shouldn't even have the person. I agree. And I have to say that this is where I was for a long time. And it just so happened that I hired people like Mandy and like Federico and some of the other people that I have working in my operation here. I had a subcontractor that I did kind of turn loose on a client and I didn't hear from him except for getting invoices and hearing from the client that he was happy. And so I know those people are out there, but initially that was a big hang up for me. Well, and I think this is so important because when I went out to hire people initially, I started with the premise that I was pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And I was going to hire somebody who I could teach. And instead, if I had thought to myself, I'm going to hire somebody who better be better than I am because I'm not going to do this at all. I'm going to delegate to them and get out of the way. I would have been in a much better position. So how do you hire people? I mean, that's sort of, I think a lot of what we're saying leads to the need, which is, which is almost an unsolvable problem, but clearly we've all solved it to some degree or another. How do you find, hire, and then keep good people so that you don't have these sorts of tragedies in your uh, business life. It sounds like you've got a keeper right now, Reuven. I have some general rules, and I don't shop on Odesk is one of them. But um, but thing, <laughs> things things like I always do a try before you buy, if that makes sense. I always start mm-hmm. people on something small, controlled, that I have a very clear idea of what the outcome should be. And I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking and making sure that I'm going to be clear in handing the piece of work off to them. And I always expect to spend more time than I thought I would have answering questions and explaining things at first. So I start with something like really small and I, I do a try before you buy and I try and like limit it to, I don't know, 10 hours or less. Something where you can say, let's just try this 
And what I want to do is test a few things. I want to test and see if we click from a communications perspective. And I want to test and see whether they're going to keep their promise. For example, if I say, here's a 10-hour task, when can you have it done? And they say, end of day tomorrow. I say, great. Well, if I don't hear anything and it's 4.30 p.m. tomorrow, I know it's probably not going to work out already. In fact, if I haven't heard anything within a few hours around questions or clarifications, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work out. Because the last thing I want is a developer who goes in a hole and makes a bunch of assumptions about what I would want. Sometimes I'll actually sort of give requirements that have areas that should be red flags and see if they catch them and they come back to me and ask me these pointed questions. Because I think that it's that idea of testing for communication, willingness to communicate, ability to clearly and professionally communicate. And of course, just like you guys have talked about, I look for somebody who doesn't come back and try and bully me technologically or make me feel stupid or, you know, because there's a lot of those kinds of arrogant attitudes out there. And, and I don't want to work with those people. Yeah, Davis. So communication keeps on coming up and coming up and coming up. And I think we're all in agreement that it is way more important than, you know, somebody's ability to debug an app cache or whatever. You know, it's like the dev skills are almost the commodity and the communication skills, the soft skills are so much more important that you click with someone that you guys, you know, your chosen choice of communication medium, whether it's Slack or email or whatever, is comfortable for both of you. You just like swim in it like fish, you know, swimming it like, like fish swimming in water. But I want to add one thing to Marcus's sort of recommendations for knowing whether or not you're fit for this or what you can do to test drive the relationship. I am exposed to people who do an amazing job of building a team. And I notice that they do things that I wouldn't have thought to do or don't have the patience to do. And a lot of them revolve around trusting the team to do what they're good at. Well, actually, there's there's something that happens first. First, they hire the most expensive, best people they can find, <laughs> they, like where they are steadfastly devoted to being the dumbest person in the room, and they say it. And there's no ego, there's no nothing from the CEO. The CEO is like, I I want to hire the smartest people I can find, and I, it's worth it. I know it's worth it. And they get those people, and they they trust them <laughs> to do what they hired them to do. And I'm not always great at that. It's not a huge weakness of mine, but I'm not great at it. And there's like this devotion to it that is, uh, you know what I am bad at? Okay, here's the thing I'm bad at, which is creating. I see these same people go out of their way, spend hours a week making sure that the relationships between these high-end people who all have egos, they spend hours a week making sure that those relationships stay positive. Because there's a lot of elbow throwing and disagreements, and especially with the remote team, a lot of people are operating not in person at all, not even on the phone. They're operating over email and Slack and text-based mediums. And when somebody gets insulted, you know, I see these CEOs who are, you know, get into it. And they spend a lot of time being almost a, more of a shrink, you know, to make sure that the team is happy and that the team is positive and functioning. It's a huge commitment. It's not the way I want to build a business, but I can see that quality in other people, and it impresses me. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's amazing, actually, but there's a certain commitment to it, and it kind of speaks back to Charles's thing about not wanting to relinquish quality control to people that maybe he doesn't trust 100%. I guess it's a trust thing and a communication thing and a dedication to making sure that the team is working in harmony. Mm -hmm. I think, I, first of all, Jonathan, like, Literally, we could just close right now. Everybody should just listen to everything you just said, and that would be <laughs> the end word on on that topic. I have nothing to add, uh, but I always almost do, almost always do. So um, <laughs> the thing I was thinking about the other day was when I was a software developer, it was my job to produce working software. But when I became a leader of a team, team lead was the position, it became my job to produce software teams. And it sounds like those CTOs understand that the thing they create are teams of people who make software. Right. And you're right in the thick of psychology and human relationships and ego and conflict. And you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things I'm, I've come to realize is people ask, how do I find time to do my real work if I'm supposed to be a manager? 
And of course, my thought is like mm-hmm. your real work is being a manager. And in fact, it actually doesn't matter if you're sitting down writing code. If you are the manager of a team, if you own a company and you just hired your first employee, everything you do is setting an example for that other person. Every check-in becomes an example of how you want things done. Every time you communicate with them, you're telling them, you're inferring how you expect them to act and how you're going to act. And you're willing to give lots of little course corrections privately behind the scenes so that hopefully you never end up with the big blow up where you have to fire somebody. And Reuven, my guess is you've got this amazing person working for you, but it's not because you never made little course corrections along the way, but it's because you made lots of little course corrections along the way and you found someone who was willing to receive those corrections to do things differently. To some degree, to some degree, I would say I definitely managed him much more heavily at the beginning than I do now. I mean, we're now in our third year of working together. And there's a lot of trust and a lot of communication and, and we just, I mean, we like each other also. And I think part of what he likes is that I give him so much autonomy, which he would never get anywhere else. But yeah, I'm sure at the beginning when he first started working with me, I was saying, I, I remember, in fact, I would say, you know, you really should try this. You really should try that. You really should do, uh, you know, test in this way or check in things in that way. And after a while, then that gave us what we needed. Exactly. Um, and now it's just sort of, you know, smooth. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. That heavy investment on the front end of the relationship. I love how you said you give him a lot of autonomy, but you don't do it because you're a nice guy. You do it because he earned the trust and he earned the trust because every time you said, why don't you do it this way? He listened and he changed his behavior and he, or he pushed back and he had a good question about it, but you didn't just assume that he was going to like, whenever you saw his work and you didn't like it, you didn't say, you know, I'll just redo it myself. And because that's what I see a lot of bad managers doing. Oh, my God. That's just like the, the kiss of death. But look. Well, then what's the point? Right, right. Right. I mean, I can imagine that a lot of people do that. But even if you can code better than your employee doing that, first of all, at a certain point, your clients are not going to want to be paying twice for the code. And so it's true. Either they're going to get angry or you're not going to charge them, um, meaning that you're not really getting the financial benefit of having an employee that you should. And second of all, you, you shouldn't be spending your time doing that. I mean, here and there, I think I did that at the beginning for like maybe a month. I think I even said, I want to review all of your code before you commit it or before you deploy it. At a certain point, I realized, oh, my God, I, I don't have time for that. And, and you uh, don't need to. Trust was built, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, now, do any of you guys have kids? Yes. Yes. Yep. Do you ever tell your kids to clean their rooms? <laughs> over <laughs> and over. <laughs> As parents, we've all told our kids they need to clean their rooms, right? Mm-hmm. You ever imagine going in and being like, you didn't clean your room very well. I'll just spend two hours doing it for you and not say anything. <laughs> yeah, that won't ever happen. <laughs> it would never happen. It's ridiculous, right? But what, saw, what sent a message would it send your kid? It would send your kid the message that if I do a crummy job, dad'll just come in and do it anyway. Yeah, and if, I still get I, dinner. What was that? And I still get dinner. And absolutely, I still get all the benefits, right? And I see managers who look at their employees' work and they go back and they grumble to their spouse or their partners, but they don't take the time to correct. They just think, well, I'll come in late and redo it. Or they just, and then they categorize them with their employees in this bucket of like, they just don't get it. And I think that's really unfortunate because a lot of times we take perfectly good, sound human beings that are developers and we turn them into really bad employees and subcontractors because we give them almost no feedback and we just like let them drift. And then when they're so far away, we just get pissed and we fire them. I got to chime in there because I have learned over and over. I I mean, I've managed a lot of people. I've had to fire people. I've done it. It's in my past. I'm not going to do it again. But I learned a lot from it. And going all the way back to like leadership roles in karate class in high school and music school and all these other things, it has been drilled into me that I overestimate how obvious what's in my mind is to everybody else. I do it over and over and over. And I almost think you cannot go overboard with explaining how you want. Uh, you can go overboard with the micromanaging, but the communication thing and saying like what's acceptable, what's not acceptable and what your expectations were. It's so easy to think that everybody can read your mind and people just take it in these wildly different in the absence of any actual information. 
people make up the weirdest stories like control freak or, you know, they hate me. You know, I've gone into one-on-ones where people, where I was about to give somebody a glowing one-on-one and they were like, I thought you were about to fire me. <laughs> and yeah. it's just like the ESP thing is way overrated. People, and I, don't, I don't think it's just me. I mean, Marcus is the expert, but I don't think oh. it's just me. I think it's so easy to assume that something that is so obvious to you is obvious to everyone else that you cannot, you might as well double check and make sure that the thing that's obvious to you is obvious to everyone or as, as well communicated as you could possibly make it. Because if you're going to be in this situation where you're managing people, it's going to solve a lot of problems. I mean, it's, I, God, we're just, I mean, it's pure communication. I mean, the whole thing. By the way, I think, that, I think, Jonathan, not only do I think you're right, but like, this is not just true in work, right? You know, this is true with family, marriage, and all sorts of other oh, places. Yeah. yeah, big time. Where it feels so much easier in personal relationships to me, but maybe that's mm. just because I'm the best dad and husband of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have a t-shirt that says that. I was going to say, I bet you have a best dad ever mug. <laughs> I'm drinking out of it right now. <laughs> no, you're, you're uh, exactly I don't have right. One. What does that mean? One of the things I tell people who are newly managing other people is I, for example, I had a client not too long ago who was hiring a, a copywriter and they're a copywriter and they were like, oh, I've managed people before. You know, I always hated it and I was really bad at it, but I'm sure it'll be fine because I'm going to hire somebody who's perfect this time. <laughs> right? Clearly, this is going to work out. And I told them, I said, so every time they submit something to you, I want you to find at least three things wrong with it. And they were like, that's like a big jerk thing to do. Like, I'm looking for what's wrong. I'm like, what if there's nothing wrong? I said, no, hold on. You are going to find three things wrong. And your job is to pretend that you're a batter at a baseball game. You're not going to let a pitch get by you. You're going to find three things wrong, no matter how small. And you're going to learn to start communicating from the very first pitch about helping this person get comfortable receiving feedback. Because if you wait two months and never say anything and then start pointing stuff out, they're going to be like, well, what the hell? Why are you so picky now? But if you start right off the bat communicating and giving feedback in a way that's gentle, corrective, non-confrontational, it becomes a normal part of the relationship. They hand you work, you give feedback and give it back. They get better it's all good. And people actually love feedback. They don't hate it like we sometimes imagine. I really like that idea of even if it's a little artificial, find three things that the person could have done differently or better. And from the very first piece of work they turn in, start giving that feedback. And as Reuven said, you're going to have to do this more on the front end, but then you're going to build trust and you're going to see how they respond to that feedback. And that's really going to determine how good a relationship it's going to be. One of the things you're saying, though, Marcus, and I, I don't think this is bad, is think of what you just described that a manager needs to do, right? They need to be correcting. They need to be communicating. These are not the same skills that a fantastic software developer needs. I mean, they should be communicating, perhaps, but that's not what they're being judged on. They're being judged on, have they produced great software? And so suddenly they're being asked to do new things. And I think one of the things I discovered when I started hiring people is management is a skill. It's a skill that you need to learn. And it's a different skill than you might have had until then. You've got to concentrate on learning and growing those skills, not just saying, ah, you know, I'll just, I'll just now look over people's code more. Or instead of looking over my code, I'll look over everyone's code. No, no, it's, it's like more than that. Yeah, I feel like you're just pitching my list right now, Ruben. It's such a... <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Which, which is, by the way, excellent. <laughs> well, when you make that transition, I talk to so many people who don't realize that they actually transition to lead other people, but their head is still back in the, I write code and I do a little light management. And Jonathan, I'm just going to press on something you said a minute ago, these ideas of self-managing people. I think it's kind of a myth. And I'm sure there's great professionals who can take a project from start to finish. But my guess is if your job is to create a team of people who produce software, then you absolutely are in the people work business. And there's no matter how good they are, they're not self-managing because they can always be better. They can always see things from an outside perspective. They always need your context to be able to make better decisions. And I think that's a lot of what management is. I want to jump in on this because uh, one thing that I've seen from the management perspective and to give a little bit of background on where this kind of comes from, first off, I've worked in companies where I was the manager and essentially I was responsible for the output from the whole team. So if I had a team member that wasn't delivering, 
then my job was to let them go and find somebody else who could make stuff happen so that the output from the team was what was expected. We were solving the right problems in the right way to meet the expectations of the company. Another really poignant example of this is the way that we run things at the school that I, I sit on the board of my kid's school. And so the board has fiduciary responsibility over the school. And the way that we work is we actually work through policy delegation practices. And so the way that it works is that the board has delegated all of its authority to run the school to the CEO or the director of the school. He's essentially the principal. And then he is required to work within the guidelines of the policies that we put in place. So he's responsible for the outcomes that the board puts forward for the school. So students will be literate, students will be numerate, students will have presenting skills, students, you know, this is an elementary school, so a lot of this is pretty basic. You know, they can read, they can write, they can do math, you know, and that they'll perform to a certain level, the school will perform to a certain level. And then the director, the CEO, is responsible for the outcome that the school has. So he's responsible for making sure that the students are numerate, literate, that they'll learn a foreign language and all of those things. And the board isn't. They are somewhat responsible to the state for that kind of thing, but they have some leeway and, uh, you know, as, as they're evaluated. And most of that falls back on the director. And if the director doesn't do his job, then he can get let go. And so then he, what he does is he hires teachers. We don't hire teachers. We don't tell the teachers what to do. We've delegated that all to him and we don't do it because simply put, we can't because we've given that responsibility to him. If he wanted to bring everybody into the gym and he could do a fun little jig that would teach them everything they needed to know, he would be meeting all of the requirements that we put in place and that would be fine, but he can't. And so he hires teachers and he's responsible for hiring and firing and he's done both of that and he reports to us about it. But at that point then, you know, we as the board are only really then as aware as he makes us or as aware as we are as parents with kids and classes in the school. So most managers are in that same position. They are put in place. I mean, my clients, it's the same thing. If I hire a team, uh, they're coming to me and they're, they are paying me to make sure that they get the outcome that they want. And the fact that I've hired other people to work on it is kind of secondary knowledge that they don't almost don't even need to have because ultimately they're going to get the outcome that they expect. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. And you hired the principal not to go in the classroom and teach or to do the jig but right. you hired him to build a team, an educating team, right? And that's you what he's done. Him, right. To, and, and that is, as you said, it involves adding new people, removing people, and correcting people who are on there with hopes to turn them from north to south, right? Or, yep. from, you know, to improve their behavior. It involves recognizing, you know, good work and it involves recognizing bad work. And it involves actually looking at the outcomes, which are inside the brains of these students, and measuring the team and being able to take good and bad feedback and report it to the people he's accountable to. It's exactly, it's a very classic management structure. And I think that when we talk, you know, if you're a freelancer right now and you're listening and you're thinking, I don't want to be in the management business, I would almost tell you, if you are anti-management and you think those people are jerks and I hate that and all I want to do is code, really be careful not to jump in to hire a buddy to help you or an Odesk person and think that they're just going to do an amazing job. Because I just can't tell you how many times I've heard that sad story. It never goes great. Well, and the other thing is, is that, and, and this is something that I want to put forward too. So as the board, we have certain things that we put in place as ways to check in on it. And I think if you set that up from the beginning or explain to your employees, look, I've been reading this book or listening to this podcast or I, you know, I kind of got this idea that, you know, I want to set targets every quarter or every month. And then I want to get a report back on how we did, you know, so you add that structure and it's, it, you know, just make it a communication thing. Then you can start to really evaluate that stuff and you can make it part of the relationship to begin with so that it's not a shock. And it's not a, well, he doesn't trust me anymore or anything like that. But it's just so that we can all do our jobs better and so that we know we're rowing in the right direction. What I guess what I'm saying is just set up a structure so that you can actually check on the things that you care about and make sure that you're doing the right stuff. And if you put it to people that way and just say, look, this is my business and this is the direction I want it to go. And this is how we're going to make sure we're going that way. A lot of people are reasonable enough to pick that up. 
And then you can just work within the framework of that. And if something's not working, then you bring them in and you collaborate with them as part of your team to say, uh, the way we're running things right now isn't working. What do you think? Or how can we do better? And then it's not this adversarial relationship where it's, or he's always checking up on me because he doesn't trust me, but it's, we're on a team, we're trying to row the same direction, and he just wants to know that the ship's pointed the right way. Yeah, I bet with education, it's not obvious walking around a school if the things that are supposed to be happening are happening. You have to take a test, look at test scores, do something, right, in order to evaluate that. Mm -hmm. And we have a monitoring schedule is the way that we do it. So the director knows that he has to bring in certain reports on, on certain months for the board meetings to show us that he's doing what we asked him to so how does that equate to software? Where in my experience, when you're in the middle of a software project or you have a team, it's also not obvious if the right things are getting done the right way that, to meet the outcomes. Well, I think one of the things you can do is set milestones. I think function, like functional milestones. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, and and not all of these things are always going to work for all teams, but that's one thing that has worked well for me is, you know, we've made a commitment to the client that we're going to deliver on this timeline, and so we have this milestone and we're going to evaluate whether or not we meet that milestone, you know, on the date that we've set for it. Another way is uh, with different processes. So it's, well, we're going to try doing this this way and then having retrospectives. And so then it's not, you aren't working for us, but this isn't working for us. This practice, this tool, this, 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 that, which is part of Agile. Finally, I hate the idea of like a performance review but one of the things that one of my bosses did that was really nice was he would call us in every quarter and just, you know, we would just talk and, uh, you know, just make sure, hey, you know, what what I'm doing is working for you. What you're doing is working for me and just make sure that you're on the same page. And then the last thing is, is make sure that the objectives are clearly stated and the expectations are clearly stated and that everybody knows how you're going to measure it. And Honestly, that kind of communication makes a huge difference. Yeah, everybody I, I, wants to know the rules of the game. Yep. Riven? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, Marcus, I, I, I mean, I've been reading your list for a while, uh, but uh, I know you have something in there. You wrote at some point about performance reviews, which is that every, everyone hates them, but no one should hate them. And I just remember so much my first job at HP, whenever we, we would be performance review time. And first of all, I was young, I was a new employee, but it was just, painful, terrifying, and surprising, right? Like, Ugh. every year would be like, really? That's a problem? And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was just like, why didn't they just tell me this earlier? And so, of course, as, as you said, like, we are the product of our experiences, especially when it comes to management and dealing with other people. So now, if there's something that bothers me with one of my employees, I will really try to say it right away. I mean, I won't necessarily always succeed, but I, I really try just because I was so burned by that. Well, the other thing is, is that uh, I've been in work situations where they had the annual or semi-annual performance review, and there was a field in there that had to be filled in that was, where could this employee improve? And the, you know, middle management would get crap over turning something in that didn't have something in that blank. And nice. I actually had it happen where my boss put something in that field he kind of winked at me like, I have to fill this in, and so I'm writing something in here that doesn't look bad. And then I had the next tier or two tiers up manager, you know, walk by me in the hall, and he stops and says, so how's it going with what my boss had written in on my form? And I'm just sitting there going, well, it's not really that big an issue, but I can't tell him that because then he's going to think that I'm blowing it off and not taking it seriously. Oh, you know, and so, I mean, if, if you're going to make it a frank and uh, high value communication between yourself and your employee, that's one thing. But if you're putting all these rules around it and then using it to beat people over the head with, yeah, no wonder people react to it. Yeah, I am a huge fan of the employee evaluation. As Ruben said, I talked about it on my list, but you guys are describing some pretty horrific wrong ways to do it. And uh, uh, my motto has been, um, I really stuck to this rule ever since I started. And I think I learned it from my manager. I basically committed that you would learn nothing new in your evaluation. There would be no surprises. Yeah. And it was absolutely like, if I have not brought it up in the past, we are not going to talk about it in your evaluation. 
It's just not the right time because you are already stressed out, worried and tense. So I have a responsibility, just like Ruben said, to make sure that there's a problem as a manager. I need to come talk to you immediately. Little things, big things, whatever you, I believe that you should never hear anything new in an evaluation, especially new bad stuff. And then the other thing is I'm a big fan of it because I think employees who uh, it makes them feel like they know where they stand mm -hmm. to have these things happen. But employees don't need don't rely on them as much when management just is honest with them. Just like Reuven is right. He There's a problem. I'll take it to the person. That's how you can trust somebody that you have a relationship with is when there's a problem, they talk to you. If my wife waited and annually, she brought to me all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm sorry. I know you were trying to talk, but oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I probably would spend 364 days pretty stressed out wondering what was going to happen on whatever day we'd chosen. And that doesn't make me a very good husband. I can't relax and do my best work. We'll use that phrase. Oh, we're two weeks out. I'm going to get it. Happy anniversary. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I don't remember where I heard this or learned this, but someone defined a manager as the person who helps the people who are working for them to do their jobs. Like, should be the person like, clear away the problems. And I, I heard this so many years ago that, I mean, I've told my employees this over the years. I've said to them, listen, my job is to make sure you can work as efficiently as possible. If there's a problem, if there's something getting in your way, tell me if it's buying something, if it's talking to someone, and I'll do it. And I don't know how often they've come to me and said, I can't work because I'm doing because of X. But I think it sort of changes the environment. That's no longer me checking up on them being mean, but it's me making sure, like, again, giving them as much autonomy to move forward and trying to solve problems. Yeah, I, I, I kind of used to think about my team as like a, a garden I was responsible for. I mean, mm. I needed to protect it from external harm of bugs or weather or, you know, whatever. But I also needed to protect it from internal harm. Some plants shouldn't be near other plants. Some plants need to be pulled out. <laughs> Weeds need to be pulled up. They could be thought of as a plant in the garden, but not every plant is the right plant for the garden. And so um, I think that idea of protecting the team and you kind of play a blocking role to make sure the team not only has what it needs, but gets protected from external pressures or politics or just crap. Because especially with software development, it requires a lot of intensity. And if people are worried about their jobs, or they're frustrated with politics and stuff, it can be a huge derailer. Can I turn around for a second to the, the flip side of the freelancing situation? So we've been talking about, you know, maybe you're a freelancer and you're upping your game and you've got too much business and you're thinking about maybe scaling up by hiring people. But what about the reverse? Maybe you're a freelancer who is in a situation where they've been hired by someone who's doing that, you know, the sort of Ooh. person who's creating the virtual agency, what can they do, if anything, to help manage up, as I've heard it called before? So what can a freelancer who's in a situation where they're not getting the kind of communication they need do to kind of help their so-called manager do a better job? I, I mean, I think and if, you know, I'll just try to chime in. I think managing up is a real thing. And I think it happens. You're, you know, if you're a freelancer and you're working for somebody, managing up is very important. It's important to manage up to your client. And if you're not a freelancer, it's important to manage up to your boss. And in my mind, the way that they can do that is primarily through communication, through even if their boss doesn't ask for things, ask for communication, that doesn't mean they don't need it and want it. And the person can, if you're a contractor, you can be sending status reports. You can be sending red flags of problems that you see on the horizon. You can be letting people know proactively when a task is taking longer than you thought it was going to. And I think every time you do that, you're investing in the trust bank a little bit, that somebody else is going to trust you more and that at the very least, they can't say that they didn't know or you withheld something from them because they never asked. Yeah, again, it comes back to communication. In fact, the people that I have had great relationships with where we're sort of independent contractors who are teamed up to do a particular thing, whether I initiated the team or someone else did, whenever it's a huge success, 
there was great communication and to be all different channels, all, you know, different type of channels and different things, but just great communication, lots of mutual respect. And, and also there's another thing that I don't think has cropped up where each person almost is like got veto power in their area where someone is kind of like the trusted, they may not be the boss or they may not be the person who spun up the project or landed the deal, but everybody's kind of the captain of their little area. So in a situation where there might be a lead developer and they kind of get the last say on how the GitHub repo gets pushed to the server. And there's a designer who gets the last say on, on how the Photoshop documents get sliced up and, and all of that. And I think that comes from that little, the, the thing you just mentioned, the trust bank, I think is super interesting. And, you know, I, we're probably beating a dead horse at this point. It's like communicate more people. That's the solution. But. Well, I, I think that probably that's indicative of good management that, that lets people, um, that sort of starts from a position of trust. They extend trust and which buys them trust. But then those people who they've hired become more trustworthy because they're entrusted with it. That's awesome. All right. Well, this has been a terrific episode. Really a lot of good stuff here. Let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jonathan, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Got two this week. One is Drip. I'm sure we've mentioned Drip a hundred thousand times on the show before, but I am really getting into a rhythm with Drip, which is a uh, powerful yet somewhat simple email marketing tool. And I just love it because it creates a two-way communication with people who are interested in stuff that I'm interested in. And it's it's what I used to use my website for. The problem with the website is it's not two-way communication. There's a bunch of anonymous people on your site. And you get these pages and you don't know how to you know, ask people like, oh, did you understand that blog post you read? There's no great way to do that. Comments aren't great for that. Uh, so I am really, really digging drip. And anybody who is trying to build an audience or create some authority from themselves in a particular niche, they should really think about signing up for drip and at least getting the basics under their belt. It's a great tool. The other thing that I'm going to talk about is uh, I published a blog post uh, just the other day about charging 100% upfront on your software projects and why it's good for you, but also good for your client for you to charge 100% in advance. And I urge people to take a look at that, especially if you're billing by the hour, because I think it might change your mind about the way you're billing for your services. And the link to that is expensiveproblem.com slash 100-100. And uh, we can link to that in the show notes. And that's all I got. All right, Ruben, what are your picks? So if we're talking about uh, managing software folks, um, so there's a book that was written a long time ago called Peopleware that I remember hearing it recommended. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I haven't read it in a while, but it was excellent. It was really like an interesting way to approach how do we talk to people? How do we talk about management? What are the ways in which we can and should communicate? So it's sort of an oldie but a goodie, and I would definitely recommend that people take a look at it. All right. I've got two books that I'm going to pick. Uh, the first one is a book about money, and it talks about most, it's mostly about investment, but it talks through a lot of the different ways that you can invest your money in order to be able to support your lifestyle later on when you retire or I, I don't know that I plan on retiring, but you know, let's say I get disabled or something. You know, just so that, you know, you can maintain your lifestyle and what it takes and how, how to save and invest that money. It's called Money Master the Game, and it is by Tony Robbins. The second book that I'm going to recommend is a book that my father-in-law bought for my daughter for Christmas last year, and I read it to my kids. And it's a historical fiction. It's about uh, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, um, and the first Thanksgiving. It's called Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims by Rush Limbaugh. Now, I know that some people are going to react, but it is not a political book. It is simply an exploration of the history with kind of some fun elements to keep the kids engaged. So um, I highly, highly recommend it if you're looking for something that's sort of educational and fictional and interesting for the kids to read. I've kind of taken to reading to my kids every night, and they've just really been enjoying it. So... Anyway, uh, those are my picks. Uh, Marcus, what are your picks? There's a book I really like called Behind Closed Doors about leading software teams by Johanna Rothman and Esther Derby. It's been around maybe like 10 years and sort of the premise is you, if you're a soft, if you're a programmer, you don't necessarily know what goes on behind those 
doors of management that you're not privy to. And so it's the idea of like, she'll, they kind of open up the doors and, and talk through how managers, especially managers of technology folks think about and doing their work and how they do their work. And I, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of a classic. Um, the other one is I'm a big fan of Harvard Business Review, which if you're a freelancer, you should not be intimidated by the by the name. But it's one of these magazines that always makes me think. And the other thing is, is when I talk to my clients, I can always quote some HBR article and they're they're like, ooh, that's, that's impressive. You read that. So um, I think it's one of those things that kind of stretches me a little bit. Especially when I was just doing development, I would start to read it, and uh, it really kind of made me think how businesses think about things a little bit more than I had been. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Marcus. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at FreelancerShow.com slash form. 